feel like that went slower for some a reason. Bit. The, the, yeah, the music was like a different pitch than it usually is. It's usually higher than that. Anyway, we're live. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to um, Season 2, Episode 7 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we look back through history and find all of the greatest and most ridiculous mistakes in human history and give them to you on a plate, an audio or visual plate, and give you lessons so that you can learn from these mistakes and never make them the same mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. Mistakes are fun. We enjoy them. And occasionally we make them when we're introing uh, podcasts. So that's that's kind of a cool thing. I screwed up quite nicely well, there. Hey, that's that's. <laughs> have you heard me present anything? <laughs> <laughs> you're good you should stop we're both professionals we should both stop being so harsh on ourselves we both have backgrounds in radio that stretch back 20 years so we're, we're professionals we're, we're old school <laughs> we're fucking old school we're the run dmc of the podcasting world my hell god yeah. hell yes we are <laughs> um joining me as ever is my amazing co-host derek derek how are you doing my man i am doing fantastic uh nice. the weather's great it's that point of year here where I don't feel like doing shit ever. I just want to go outside <laughs> and hang out, stare out the window all day, wishing nice. I wasn't working, you know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like every day, really. Um, yep. No, I get exactly what you mean. Um, it's it's starting to turn nice here. We're getting like that kind of spring thing where it's it's kind of sunny, but still cool. And the dog's going a bit mental in the garden because there's <laughs> stuff coming back so yeah it's um it's a lovely time of year and we are now at approaching ten thousand all-time listeners so we're not far away we're only 500 listeners away but we've had over 110,000 downloads which is really amazing so i can't thank everyone out there who's listening to this enough you guys are amazing and um, if you don't know already we do have um instagram and twitter i'll do this now instead of at the end of the podcast so our instagram is at history's greatest idiots and our twitter is at greatest idiots we are also available on youtube um if you go i can't remember what the sub because the the letters and numbers and jumbles so just search for history's greatest idiots on youtube you will find us there we do have our own channel uh we don't have our own twitch channel but we we kind of broadcast on mine which is at wild the anger on twitch um so yeah and also we have a patreon account which is uh, patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots be our first patreon please we need money. Um, <laughs> so we've got all of the socials and all of that. And occasionally I post some of the reels um, on on TikTok. I have a TikTok where I just post all the work I do. I can't so. remember how to log into my other TikTok. <laughs> I had to create a new one. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think we're, we're starting to get left behind by technology a little bit at our age. Aren't we? I did a degree in multimedia. Uh, that was 1999. So... <laughs> That was a shit. That was a long time ago. That was so multimedia, radio, TV, video, radio, cassette. TV, and HTML. That was it. There wasn't even a C plus. It was just uh, C. That was all uh, I learned. So yeah, holy shit. So long ago. I'm really dating myself. So um, it's been an amazing week. Everyone seems to be doing really well. We're growing really nicely. But um, we are in episode seven, season two. We've covered some really amazing people, and I'm I'm really looking forward because in this episode, I get to use uh, for the people who are watching live and the people who watch the video after the fact. Um, I get to use our first interactive um, element today in the form of a slide to demonstrate the amazing person I'll be covering. But for now, 
Derek, who is your idiot this episode? Okay, so I feel like I've been covering a lot of uh, people that are still alive or missing or in prison or whatever, and I, I kind of <laughs> wanted to do history, uh, sure. older history, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, I love to cover folks that have done bad or horrible things. This isn't one of those, though. This is okay. kind of different. And I guess it depends on who you are, whether or not you think he was a dick. But um, <laughs> I'm going to cover somebody that most people would generally accept as a decent person. Um, the twist on it is he just did something so completely stupid that he managed to get himself killed. Ooh. And that's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like covering people who... There's a subjective element to their existence, um, but the way they died is kind of fucking stupid. I think the first person that jumps to mind is Herb Abrams, who the wrestling promoter that we covered, who blew a shitload of money and died. Right, let me make sure I get the sequence right. <laughs> <laughs> um, na naked, chasing prostitutes out of his office, covered in baby oil and cocaine, uh, while being arrested by police and swinging a baseball bat. Uh, oh, good that's, grief. That's yes. how Herb Abrams died. Um, <laughs> and then we've got Gigi Allen, who, again, like, kind of not exactly, you know, there's elements you like, oh, he poos on stage, cuts himself. That's not so great. But the way he died on a drug fueled, poo covered rampage through New York City, that's kind of insane. Um, yes, yes. But yeah, so tell us about this person, please. Okay, not nearly as wild, but uh, right. I'm the, in a dark way, super hilarious. Anyway, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he was born on September 13th, 1813 in Cornwall, Connecticut. And just take a moment here to address the people that think like me or might have a triskaidekaphobia. It was a Monday, not a Friday the 13th, but it was still uh -huh. September 13th, 1813. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> um. I got lost. Oh, That's yeah. okay. Don't worry. So he was born, and they named him after his grandfather, John Sedgwick, who was an American Revolutionary War general that served with George Washington. And okay. he actually survived the Grim Rim, uh, the Grim Reaper. No, he did oh, wow, not. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Bill and Ted level of uh, excitement right there. That's, that's amazing. No, he survived the Grim Winter in 1777 at Valley Forge. Right. So long story short, this dude comes from a long line of patriarchs that served in leaders. His grandfather's brother was Theodore Sedgwick, the statesman representative, whatever. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense that he would follow along that path. And yeah. he started out with just the standard education at Sharon Academy for two years and then went to Cheshire Academy. Mm. And then as a teenager, he went on to teach for a couple of years. Nice. Uh, during the, the the winters, in the summers, he worked on the farm. Of course, and... yeah, that was quite common back then. Like the kind of oh, the yeah. split season jobs that happened quite a lot at that time. I think that's the whole reason for like the way we have our layout here for our mm. school years is based on agriculture. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because they'd need. The yeah, they they they'd have the kids off to till the fields with their family and shit. So they're like, we need the kids. We need them to gather before the fucking autumn arrives. So like, yeah, here you go, kids. Six weeks off, go and work. And we uh, fell for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 
he did that uh, teaching farming thing for a couple of years until mm-hmm. he got accepted into the United States Military Academy in 1833. Wow. Some, okay. some of his classmates at the academy would go on to become Confederate generals, including mm-hmm. Braxton Bragg, John C. Pemberton, um, William H.T. Walker, which is awkward because he goes on to be a uh, Union general. Okay. (laughs) Um, He graduated 24th in his class out of 50 cadets at the United States Military Academy in 1837. Yeah. Yeah. That's a C student class. Yeah. You know, like, get under the radar. It's like, don't pay any attention to me. I'll be fine. Just leave me to my own devices, please. See, and for the most part, his entire career, uh, outside of some of his brevet promotions that he gets there, I'll talk about in a minute, he did have a kind of middle of the road. Sure. sort of career as far as generals go, I guess, because I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he he comes out of the military academy, uh, second lieutenant with the second U.S. artillery, and he's sent down to Florida where he okay. participated in the Seminole War, which is war against Native Americans. And and then he went on to see action in the Mexican-American War, where he did get two promotions one uh, where he made captain after his actions at the Battle of, Battle of Contreras, and then um, after the Battle of Capuel Tepic, okay, outside yeah. of Mexico City, he sure. was promoted to major. Wow. Okay. So it's for, this for gallantry, to, yeah, <laughs> this guy seems to for a because obviously he's a Union general, right? Essentially, but yes. for a, for someone from the Union, he seems to thrive in quite difficult environments you know like the florida setting you got mexico these are not union weather strongholds these are very warm swampy environments yeah definitely not the cold uh the the wintry north like of connecticut where he's from exactly yes very impressive so far now after mexico he goes on to serve in the cavalry and he goes to kansas which is Mm. a little bit more cold like home but still Um, and he wanders on into the Utah War, where he puts down some of the uprising with the Mormon settlers. Of course. Yeah. And, of course, participated in the Indian Wars throughout the 1856, Jesus. 57. Yeah. Um, in the summer and fall of 1860, he commanded an expedition to a new fort on the Platte River in Colorado, which was in a really remote BFA location where they didn't have any railroads. And so they were carrying stuff like wagon train and riverboat and horseback. Wow. And a lot of it didn't go as planned. And most yeah. of the supplies didn't arrive. Oh shit. That's really not good. That said, uh, they had a decent winter because they managed to get up some comfortable stone buildings and uh, mm. they all weathered it out there before the cold weather got there. That's um, that's smart. That's very fortunate, actually, because no supplies, harsh winter, that could have been the end of the, the entire army at that point. And it, it, he did well and was promoted to lieutenant colonel and Good. was sent to Washington, D.C., back to the cold white north. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that brings us to the start of the American Civil War, where mm-hmm. he served as a union officer, like I said. Mm-hmm. When the war broke out, he was serving as the assistant inspector general of the military department in washington okay and on april 25th 1861 he was promoted to the full rank of colonel and placed in charge of the first cavalry after its commander robert e lee resigned Uh, i wonder where that guy went 
Yeah, what happened to old Bobby? <laughs> huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that said, he missed early action in the war at the first Battle of Bull Run because uh, he got cholera. Oh, so, you you get cholera. Holy shit. That's usually the end of a lot of people. My and he God. survived it, missed a battle, Jeez. and was promoted to brigadier general. That, that's insane. So he got a horrible, lethal illness, mm -hmm. uh, missed the battle, and got promoted. This, this guy is doing all right for himself at this point. Well, and this is not the only time he's going to survive some shit that most people didn't back then. So wow. <laughs> um, he recovers. He's promoted to Brigadier General on August 31st, 1861. He's now the commander of the 2nd Brigade under Major General Samuel P. Einstelman. Okay. <laughs> it's fucking, there's so much military in here that I, I just kind of copied and pasted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he ends up uh, commanding the second division of the second corps for the Pennsylvania campaign. And then in Virginia, okay. he fought at Yorktown and seven pines. Wow. Big, big battles there. And during the seven days battle, um, he was wounded. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, after the seven days battle, oh, wait, after, yeah, after the seven days battle, he was, uh, promoted to major general of the volunteers. And wow. then, as the commander of the second corps and major general participated in the uh, battle of uh, anti, anti why do I suck at these words? <laughs> it's not that I don't know them. I just can't no. say them. My, ah, it's okay. Yeah. Don't worry. Anyway. So yeah. he gets into this stuff and the divisions commanded by the Confederate um, by, by John. Yes. And he engages Confederate forces. Um, that are under the command of Major General uh, Stonewall Jackson. Ooh, now another notable figure. He Stonewall's kind of a, a a legendary figure in terms of his ability to rally troops. Right, that's like his his big thing, like the war cry, and he literally yes. got his name from the Stone Wall. Yes. So. Yes. Well, and then when John comes in with his division and comes up against Stonewall Jackson, mm. he ends up uh, being attacked on three sides. Oof. And the Confederate forces are super successful. Yeah. John's division was routed. He fell back. And during the battle, he was severely wounded Jeez. and only returned with about half the men that he started the battle with. Wow. And him, he himself, he was shot three times in the wrist, in the leg, in the shoulder. Jesus. Yeah. And he was out of battle until he showed up at the Battle of Fredericksburg. Right. Wow. So um, wounded in another battle, shot three times in this one, survived cholera. He's doing pretty all right. Maybe he thinks yeah. he's invincible. I mean, why wouldn't you? At this point, you've survived more diseases than like an explorer. And you've been shot more times than 50 cent. Who wouldn't think that they were invincible? <laughs> you know? Like I, I can't be stopped. I mean, yes, I, I got a bunch of people killed because I went up against one of the greatest generals in the history of American warfare. But still, you know, and I, it's it's weird because this this is the thing about when you research from an outside of America perspective, you hear a lot of Confederate general names, right? Not so much Union, and there's this perception that. Um, the Confederacy was doing really, really, really well, and they had some amazing thinkers and some great generals and some really tactical, incredible tactical thinkers. 
but the union at the same time was fighting with one arm but tied behind its back because it had so much manpower that at any moment, if it just threw numbers at the opposition, they would eventually have just won. So it's weird to hear that this guy, despite being a middling student and despite <laughs> getting shot and having cholera and shit, is actually doing okay. I mean, he wasn't going to beat Stonewall Jackson. Very few people did. So that's kind of amazing so far. So, so far, I'm kind of impressed with this dude to an extent. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. And he was generally, he's got a lot of shit named after him, too. Yeah, I mean, I he, bet, yeah. he he's generally hailed as a hero. But sure. uh, back to where we were at here. After yeah. the Battle of Fredericksburg from December uh, 1862, mm-hmm. he continued to lead the Second Corps and then on to the Ninth Corps. And then he ended his career uh, with the Seventh Corps of the Army of the Potomac, where he commanded until his death in 1864. Oh wow! At the Battle of Gettysburg, his his troops arrived late on July 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> late to the battle! Holy shit! Uh, yeah, wow. and as a result, they were one of uh, only few units that were. Uh, able to take part in the final union counterattacks because they were late yeah okay Uh, sure they weren't kept together as a unit but they were scattered kind of around and um him and his men performed exceptionally well at the second battle of uh rap and hancock station Mm -hmm. and they came away with four field uh four field pieces eight stands of enemy colors and 1700 prisoners wow um that's a pretty good, pretty good win. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> little haul right there. Holy shit. Like the standards are a big thing, but the 1700 um Confederate troops, that would have been quite a blow for like a specific unit that would render them very de- uh, demoralized and understaffed and undermanned. That's quite something. And so after that, they shifted on for uh the battle of um Spotsylvania Courthouse. That's a great name. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> Spotsylvania Courthouse. Holy shit. And that will be his last battle because on mm. May 9th, 1864, at the beginning of the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, right. um, his core uh, was probing skirmish lines and mm-hmm. Confederate sharpshooters were about a thousand yards away, just popping off rounds at him. Just wow. Pop, pop. And his people were ducking. <laughs> <laughs> because hold on hold on people were shooting at them well um he he was kind of embarrassed by that and wanted to rally why would you be embarrassed by people trying not to die well you'll see (laughs) okay okay sorry i'm sorry carry on (laughs) um he 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 was well liked by the soldiers and they often referred to him as uncle john oh and so to reassure his men, he wandered out into the open, oh, no. walking upright, and is quoted as saying, what? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire with the whole line? What? And um, they kept dodging and flinching anyway, and he stood up and said, why are you doing this? They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And now um, it's rumored that he didn't finish that sentence before he was <laughs> shot. 
but oh it's also widely accepted that he didn't finish that sentence um, <laughs> when he was shot with a Whitworth rifle fired from a Confederate sharpshooter that hit him just under the left eye. Um, Ooh, his, his chief of staff, Martin T. McMahon, said that sharpshooters' bullets were flying all around, making whistling noises, right. and, quote, the same shrill whistling closing with a dull heavy stroke interrupted me and i remembered distinctly that i commenced to say general they're firing explosive bullets when his face turned slowly to me and blood spurting from his left cheek under his eye in a oh. steady stream brought to me the first knowledge of our great disaster <laughs> he fell in my direction and i was so close to him that in my effort to support him i failed and we tumbled to the ground fuck and me he never regained consciousness, continued to bleed out for some time until his hair and clothes were soaked with blood and he was no more. Oh, uh, my God. He I'm sorry, was... I just, uh, I like that. <laughs> sorry just, just back to that account. Um, so I said something to the general and he turned to me and I could see blood pissing out of his, out of his face. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought was wrong about this situation. What? Yes, that <laughs> that it's... would be a sign too. I know that's super brutal and I'm laughing out of nervousness and no. just because it's comically so old that I'm allowed to. You, you are, uh, Yeah, this is definitely not one of those, oh, too soon moments. No, <laughs> this is definitely, you are, you are allowed to laugh at this. This is fucking insane. So um, um, while he's saying nobody will hit the, the elephant, he gets hit in the face, he dies. He's the highest ranking union death in the Civil War. <sighs> the entire Civil War. Um, there was... Somebody that technically outranked him, but didn't have time in surface or command. Right. Um, so, but it's, it, this is what they, uh, historians list as the, the highest ranking union death of the civil war. And upon hearing of his death, Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant, um, just kept asking, is he really dead? Cause he was wow. super well liked. Um, Aww. He was buried near the his birthplace near Cornwell Hollow in Connecticut, and that uh, is the short, interesting, wow. brutal tale of uh, Major General John Sedgwick. Uh, there's a there's a monument of him of General Sedgwick at West Point, and okay. the Academy legend has it that a cadet who spins the spurs of his boots on the statue at midnight while wearing full parade dress, gray over a white uniform. Okay. Uh, we'll have good luck on their final exam. That's a very weird custom, but I get it. Why does a statue have spurs that can spin? So you like can have good luck on a final exam. I, I guess so, apparently. Um, I feel like that's a lot of fucking rules. I feel like somebody was like, is. oh, wait, and make them do this. Yeah. And also, then it's only for the final exam. It's only, it's not for some, that's yeah. such a weird circuit like traditions. And stuff like that, I find really, really weird. Uh, just uh, completely off, off, off course with this t complete tangent moment. I dated a girl in my first year in university who's from Kazakhstan. Yes, an actual okay. person from Kazakhstan who wasn't Borat. Um, <laughs> she um, ate cake for breakfast, which I was like, can I not have toast? Do I have to eat this cake? Um, she ate tongue sandwiches. And I, was like, well, I know it's not it does not taste good um and um i wasn't allowed to whistle in the house that was really bad luck oh. and i this is my favorite one was um we weren't allowed to kiss in front of a mirror in case it stole our love 
I know. That was kind of dope. I like that one. Yeah, that's kind of, that's like <laughs> fucking scary gypsy curse level shit right there. That's like really scary stuff. I so, think that's why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so, it was so jarring to me. So hearing a tradition like that, where you are have institutions like West Point's what fucking hundreds of years old at this point. It's mm-hmm. one of the oldest institutions in America, I think. Um, it's been so. around forever, yeah. And half of the people that came from the Civil War in terms of generals and commanders and stuff, they were from West Point on both sides. I know, so, right? That's crazy. That would be weird to fight against somebody that you <laughs> you graduated high school with or I know. I mean, college with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you <laughs> you're sitting in class one day and like, ah, there's this really hot topic coming up around this around the slavery thing i mean it's already outlawed in the in the north i mean it, it, you can't that's terrible that these people are still owned by other people right no i really like it no yeah I definitely would stand by that principle if it came to a fight yeah for sure <laughs> jesus i don't think i'm gonna hang out with this guy outside of class and then all of a sudden you're fighting each other a few years later yeah, okay i guess i can see it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it like that it's uh yeah political conversations between classmates they rarely develop into wars but that one certainly did um holy shit but yeah this it's so sad in a way right because this guy like you, like you said at the start middling student essentially did quite well as a commander um had successes mm-hmm. which certainly the union didn't have in the early stages of the war, there weren't that many successes to be had. So for him to get promotion after promotion after promotion is really good. But also, this is something that, I mean, certainly from my study of military history is really rare, is that he was liked by his men and he sounds like a good guy. Yeah. Which, you know, you hear a lot of military people. They are not nice people. And I mean, they might be respected by their men, but they're certainly not liked. Right. You know? Like so, Custer. Yeah, massive arsehole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you look even for the time. A lot of these military people in in every country, they are not the nicest people, even for their their day. Right? I think so, you got to be a bit of a dick to do that job. Yeah, it's it's the old um, Team America will police talk where uh, those arseholes, dicks, and and pussies and stuff like that. Like sometimes you need a dick to fuck an asshole or something. Like <laughs> there's a whole conversation in the bar about liberals and republicans and gun advocates and stuff, and they become like various body parts. It's, it's oh, really funny. Geez. But yeah, a lot of a lot of people in the military are big nationalists. They believe in their country. They believe in their cause. They're quite right wing, and they they go hard in battle so you know great for them not going to spend too much time alone with them but sure great that's that's fantastic but this guy is one of the exceptions i just i feel like i i would love to know more about like his general level of ego right because clearly his men knew something he didn't in that situation when there are sniper bullets firing around them and they're ducking and he's like stop being such pansies and like everyone else can hear them flying past their heads and see them so they're like uh buddy look we we like you but this is one of those things where you need to duck i feel like it might have been because of surviving cholera and being shot three other times four other times so maybe yeah maybe it did give him a bit of a I am invincible, a bit of a, a god complex. Maybe. Um, yeah. Especially in a war like that where hundreds of thousands of people are dying. 
you know, every year. And you've been shot a bunch of times. You survived cholera. You would get a little bit of, and you know, he's promoted as well. So with each uh, promotion comes like a little bit of prestige, a bit of like recognition, a bit of, oh, wow, I'm a, I'm a brigadier general now. Oh my God. I'm, I'm like really someone. I started out as a <laughs> C plus student back in <laughs> the, the fucking military academy. Uh, in terms of, I mean, yeah, it's funny because there's so many different ways we grade idiots on the show. And, there's usually like if someone's had a history of idiocy and we'll get to someone like that in a minute, um, <laughs> then usually they score quite highly. And if they're arseholes, then they score quite highly. And if they are monsters who don't understand how awful their actions have been, they get high scores. Um, this guy is still going to get a high score purely because he seems that it seems that his ego ran away with him. And he couldn't recognize his own fallibility, even his own mortality towards right. the end. So I am going to go, not massive, because he seems like a good guy. He was quite successful, and the Union ultimately won the war. Um, I mean, he wasn't there to see it at Appomattox or whatever it was. So, you Close. know, yeah, it was almost there. It was almost there. Um, so I'm going to go 84. I think with this guy that if he, if nothing else, if he just been one of these generals that history doesn't particularly remember and all of that, he probably definitely wouldn't feature on the show, but the manner of his death, as you pointed out before the show is so fucking stupid. Um, I wanted a bit at the end of his, his um, assistance account. I wanted the last part to say, and then, as happens with all men when they die, he soiled himself. Um, just to cap it off. I think know? that part was redacted. <laughs> he, he saw, and because he was wearing such wonderful clothing that was made of the finest materials, it just soaked right through into his bloodstained gear, and he died a shade of red and brown that I have not seen hence. So It was missing the fecal. It was missing the whole... South Park episode where everyone <laughs> dies and then immediately shits themselves violently. Oh, uh, God, yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, God bless uh, uh, animated American television. My God. Uh, so that's that's definitely. I feel like uh, that's someone who whose ego probably extended to the point where they no longer recognized danger around. Yeah, them. I feel like trying to get his guys to stand up and then getting shot himself that's... maybe saves some lives. Probably, yeah. Um, it would have driven home the danger of the the shop. I mean, I know at thousand yards we're talking about very old technology at this point, but at thousand yards, if you're hearing bullets whistle past your head, you get the fuck down and you stay down. You know, that's one of the things. One of the reasons Vietnam on on certain occasions was quite a disaster because large groups of American servicemen were just walking slowly through open fields and getting picked off by people that were hiding in the trees. So you've really got to adapt to the situation and this stupid motherfucker didn't. So yeah. God bless what was sorry, what was his name again? It was one of those General John Sedgwick. John Sedgwick. Uncle John. Uncle John General Sedgwick gets a solid 84 for not recognizing that bullets can hurt you, you know? amazingly and <laughs> um, so from someone who had a successful military career and kind of fucked it all up at the end with one really stupid decision to someone who was born 
to into the most unbelievable power and success and wealth and fucking threw it all away um but was possibly one of the first notable um certainly when they revived his cuz this guy was scrubbed from records for a very long time was oh. probably one of the first notable gay icons in British society at that time in the Victorian era. Now, I'm going to go back. We're not covering anyone too recent in this one. So I'm going to take you back to the Victorian era and introduce you to Henry Paget, the dancing Marquis. So Henry Cyril Paget, very, very English name. The fifth Marquis of Anglesey was born in Paris on the 16th of June, 1875. He was the eldest son of the fourth Marquis by his father's second wife, Blanche Mary Boyd. However, rumours persisted that his biological father was, in fact, the French actor Benoit Constant Coquelin. Uh, a rumor that, yeah, <laughs> a rumor that gained some currency when, according to some sources, after the death of his mother in 1877, when he was only two years old, which is that's tragic, right there. That's, Holy shit! Yeah, early trauma. Early trauma. We're already we already know this isn't going to be good. Um, Paget reportedly was raised by Coquelin's sister-in-law in Paris until he was eight years old. Scandal. <laughs> the English the English nobility is scandalized by this, but uh, shit was going on all the time. Um, the story seems to have been a confusion of facts. The sister-in-law, uh, Nee Edith Marion Boyd, was the fourth Marquis's aunt, one of his mother's sisters. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and she did not wed Coquelin's brother, Gustave, until 1891. His stepmother from 1880 was an American Mary Mina Livingston King, the widow of the Honorable Henry Woodhouse. So many fucking names and I'm titles. Lost. Let's just say <laughs> that it, you know, that this is a muddle jumble, and we'll just go with yeah, you know, probably bastard child raised by someone else. Let's let's just go with that. It's easier than trying to remember a bunch of fucking intense names. Yeah, um, I have to get out my pins and yarn and try to figure out. <laughs> yeah. Um, ironically, we're going to be talking about someone who's very famous for using pins and yarn to keep track of things in a little bit later in this story. I'll keep that. Okay. The originator of that system. Um, he attended Eton College because, of course, he fucking did. He's a rich prick. Um, later receiving private tuition and was commissioned as a lieutenant in the 2nd Volunteer Battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers um, because... Part of the, now I want to point out the Marquis of Anglesey. So Anglesey is a very specific part of North Wales. It's where I'm from. Um, Anglesey is, if you look at a map of the UK and you see Wales, there's like a little, there's the floating head just off the north, um, northwest of, uh, of Wales. That's Anglesey. Um, it has its own microclimate. So if it's raining um, on the land, uh, it's probably very sunny over on Anglesey and vice versa. Uh, there's only two bridges on and off the island. It's got about 50, probably 50 beaches. Nice. Uh, yeah, lots of beaches. It's very popular with tourists, big like uh, farming community there. It's also got really great food because of the stuff in the sea. And um, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of Neolithic burial sites. So my mother's house on Anglesey is 200 yards from a burial site, which is uh, dates back 6,000 years. 
Holy so, crap. I know. That is some history right <laughs> That's there. history right there. And uh, yeah, they can find um, signs that there was like cooking and stuff there because of like specific materials they found. So yeah, like um, Neolithic burial where they think potentially they may have burned bodies. So that's that's a little fucking oh, wow. dark history for you there. Holy shit. <laughs> Cremation 6,000 years ago. Um, next level. Yeah, exactly. So um, we'll talk about um, the... Uh, Marquises of Anglesey's the Paget's holdings in the UK, but Anglesey's going to be the main focal point of this story. Okay. Um, so on the twentieth of January, eighteen ninety-eight, he ma- <laughs> he married his cousin Lillian Florence Maud Chetwind, eighteen seventy-six to nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, she lived a long time. Holy uh, crap! Yeah, that's a good life right there. Um, upon the death of his father yeah especially someone from that era jesus um upon the death of his father on the 13th of october 1898 he inherited his title and the family estate with about thirty thousand acres that's 75 square miles in staffordshire which is on the border between england and wales dorset which is uh down at the foot of england Anglesey, which we've already talked about, Derbyshire, which is in the Midlands, and um, all of these holdings, all of these estates, provided an annual income of £110,000 back in 1898. Now, for reference, in 2022 money, that's £13 million a year. That's sick. That's some Just good from owning money. land? Just from owning and operating the land. So, Typically, what happens is they will lease the land to farmers who want to produce, and you know the farmers are, are given a, a preferential rate, and obviously they then use that to you know farm for sheep or be, uh, cows, grow crops, whatever it might be. But let's be honest: the wealthy landowners in the UK, and it still holds true to this very day, um, they hire people to rent this land to manage it and they hire people to manage the estate so all of these different farms are then managed by you know maybe two three people and those two or three people are managed by one person and that one person will walk into the the marquis's house maybe twice a year and go here's a report see ya um and and that's what they do so basically he would hire someone to do all of this and as long as this person was competent he could basically sit back and do jack shit while earning 13 million pounds a year. So I think I figured out what I want to do for my life. <laughs> Just travel back in time to Victorian era and become a wealthy landowner because that shit is the easiest life in the world. And don't let the, the aristocracy, and this is a big problem in this country, don't let them fool you. They have it fucking easy compared to the majority of us. Uh, I think that holds true in America. Yes, well, I'm sure. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Remind me to have... tell you about a book I just read too. Oh yeah, we'll have yeah. to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> um, Paget swiftly acquired a reputation for a lavish and spendthrift manner of living. He used his money to buy jewelry and furs, and to throw extravagant parties and flamboyant theatrical performances. He renamed the family's country seat Plas Newydd, which um, in Welsh means new house. Um, uh, on Anglesey, he renamed it to Anglesey Castle, which fuck you, you English prick, it ain't no castle. Uh, and also, uh, Wales has more castles per square mile than any other country in the world, and that's because castles were used as a way to um, control and repress the people of Wales because they were constantly terrified that we were going to rise up 
and de declare ourselves independent. So they built a castle every like 10, 15 miles and put like 40, 50 soldiers in there. And then they come out and like fucking stop talking Welsh and then go back <laughs> in the castle. <laughs> stop having culture and then go back in uh. the castle again. Yeah. Use the pound and then disappear again. <laughs> um, yeah. So he was very extravagant. He's renamed Plasnewydd to Anglesey Castle. Um, by the way, Plasnewydd um, is a beautiful place. If you're ever there, the National Trust own it. You can go in, you can walk right through the house. It's full of history. It's kind of like a small, if you've ever seen something like uh, Downton, Downton Abbey, something like that. It's like a much smaller version of Downton. I mean, the house is still okay. fucking big, right? And it's still got like 30 acres of land with it. Um, but it's much smaller than a huge country estate. It's it's kind of smaller. The house itself itself is full of history because the Marquises have been in there for years. The first Marquis of Anglesey actually owned the America's Cup, which is really interesting. Oh. Yeah, I know. I didn't know that until I did my research. But also, there's a really amazing love story that happened between um i think it was this guy's sister and a, a a painter called whistler but not the whistler who painted his mother um a different whistler who was an artist whistler yeah. uh, was much older and he fell in love with this woman he adored her he painted all these pictures and he was so in love with plasnewid that there is a giant room in plasnewid painted floor to ceiling like an italian renaissance scene so like you're sitting on a balcony looking out at renaissance rome or, or tuscany or, or something like that right the whole room is like that That's everything cool. on the floor yeah it's not even the sistine chapel he did the ceiling he did all of the walls and he did the floor you're in the painting when you go wow. into the room. It's fucking amazing. I swear to God, it's one of my favorite pieces of art because you are inside it and everywhere you look, there's detail and like a little clue and maybe a love note to his like love and uh, a, a deed for so-and-so and a thing to this. So it's like loads of references in the room. It's just one of the most amazing things, completely priceless. There's also, um, I think there's a Rembrandt in there as well, which is worth like 40 million pounds. So there's plenty of art in this place, right? So there was this whole love story. And then Whistler goes off to World War One and is killed within a week. Um, that was the end. I know. And that was the end. Or oh, was it World War Three? <clears throat> anyway, he, he's dead in a week. And that was the end of that love story. But there's this like amazing treasure that lives yeah. on in this house to kind of remember him and his love. Anyway, that was slightly after this guy's time, but he set um, in place a, a haven for artists to come to and enjoy a kind of a, a lavish lifestyle with him. We'll talk about that lifestyle now. Um, so he's renamed the castle. He then goes on to convert the chapel, which is inside the castle, into a 150-seat theatre named the Gaiety Theatre. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Know what I mean? A up. Something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here, he took the lead role, um, opulently costumed, in productions ranging from pantomime and comedy to performances of Oscar Wilde's An Ideal Husband and Shakespeare's Henry V. Early performances from around 1899 were mostly variety performances of song and dance numbers, sketches, and tableau vivants. Um, in front of an invited audience of notable local people. Not many of those in that part of the world, I'm sorry. Um, Sounds like old school Saturday Night Live. More or less, yeah. Only he's doing it in his big fucking 
own thing. It is essentially the theater inside in our life because that's probably like 150 people, right? Maybe a bit yeah. more. So yeah, if you think okay. about the size of that stage, he's turned his, a part of his house into a fucking <laughs> studio <laughs> at an enormous cost. Um, I don't know, this guy seems cool so far. I, I, I got to tell you, right? I know we talk about... Um, the show's called History's Greatest Idiots, right? The majority of the emphasis in this story is on greatest, because this guy's <laughs> fucking amazing. Um, in 1901, the Gaiety Theatre was refurbished and fitted out with electric stage lighting and reopened as a public entertainment venue. And for three years, Paget took his theatre company on tour around Britain and Europe. Instead of running his estates, he's fucking off around Europe with this troop of actors under That's the name awesome. The Gaiety Theatre. Yeah, he's just <laughs> doing whatever the fuck he wants with this £13 million a year that he's earning. Fuck that. And then he was like, I'm going to go even more mad. Fuck it. I'm not just touring. I'm going to spend everything. Uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly, his wife disapproved of his lifestyle. Uh, no shit. And obtained a decree of Nisi, Nisi? I don't know, of divorce. Um, on the 7th of November 1900, the marriage was later annulled due to non-consumption. Oh. Mm. According to Lady Anglesey's grandson by her second marriage, the historian Christi uh, Christopher Simon Sykes, uh, the breakdown of his marriage effectively gave Paget more freedom to enjoy his self-indulgent lifestyle. That's going to be a big key to this story. By this stage, he had already begun to mortgage his estates to raise more money. He's already overspent. He's spending more than thirteen million pounds a year at this point. That's a bit of a spending problem. That's yeah. That's a bit of an issue. I think uh, this is like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Paris Hilton levels of insanity at this stage. Playing center stage in every performance with Paget, he became known as the Dancing Marquis uh, by the newspaper gossip sheets. He used every show to put on a butterfly dance display adorned by costumes which would literally cost millions of pounds today. Oh, One costume would cost a million. A costume would cost a million pounds. Yeah, um, why is it? I'll tell okay. you why now. <laughs> he, uh, this is, there's going to be a lot of uh, quotes from uh, his biographer called uh, Cyril Davis. So he didn't understand the cost, the concept of costume jewelry. He thought it had to be made real, um, explained oh. his biographer, who wrote and performed an acclaimed musical based on the life of the Marquis. Uh, some estimate a diamond-encrusted costume for the pantomime Aladdin was worth at least £10,000 at the time, an eye-whopping £1 million at current prices. The costume was worth more than the house, and it was, ju <laughs> and it was just left in the dressing room, and somebody nicked it, and so he made the decision to have another one made. Oh, my God. Okay. I know. Well, he's That's cool, but dumb as hell. He's so stupid. <laughs> He's um, he's like, oh, so it's going to look like this. I'm just going to put diamonds over it. So we, we have to get those from South Africa. They have to come from dangerous part of that. And the size of the diamonds you're talking, they're so expensive. Ah, here's 10 grand. Off you go. Um, let's talk about another theft that happened involving okay. him, shall we? This is an amazing story in itself. And this could be an entire podcast if we could find full details on it. <laughs> on the 10th of September, 1901, Paget attended the London premiere of Arthur Conan Doyle's stage adaptation of Sherlock Holmes 
at the Lyceum Theatre in London. At the time, Paget was living in the Washington House Hotel in London. Paget's French valet, Julian Galt, took the opportunity of his employer's absence at the theatre to steal jewellery to the value of £50,000. That's the equivalent of £6,539,130.43, or for our American listeners out there, $8,512,829.63, or for our Dutch listeners out there, €7,827,291.45, whatever the fuck, mini euros, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Tiny euros, little euros. Um, So uh, distraught at the theft, because at this point it's like, oh God, everyone keeps stealing from me. Maybe I should do something about it instead of just buying more shit. Lock Uh, your shit up. Yeah, (laughs) maybe put it away. You stupid <laughs> motherfucker. Uh, distraught at the theft, Paget enlisted the help of Conan Doyle himself to find the stolen jewels. He's hired Sherlock fucking Holmes <laughs> to, hire, to find his jewels. Now, if you ever wondered where Arthur Conan Doyle's insane stories came from, this is one of them for sure. Like, There's no way this didn't make it into a story. Um, so, so, You're a detective, right? Go find it. You write about a fame, the most famous detective in the world. You've got to be pretty good. Um, like this is this is the process Conan Doyle went through, right? So he's like, "What do you know about the jewels?" He's like, "Well, I left them in my room with my valet, Julian. Julian's French. He's disappeared. So have the jewels. That's all I know." Right. So your valet is French. Um, he's disappeared. The jewels have disappeared. What else do you know about your valet? Oh, he has a French wife. Okay, where does she live? Oh, she lives in France. Okay. And Arthur Colan Doyle at this point's like, ah, they must have gone to Iceland. No, he didn't. They were just like, <laughs> he's like no, he's definitely going to France with this shit and he's going to hawk it over there and you're never going to see it again. So um, basically, um, Galt was later arrested at Dover because Conan Doyle had hired a bunch of detectives in ports uh, to keep an eye out for this suspicious looking french dude and he was in dover like basically the only reason anyone's going to dover is to leave the country pretty much because you go oh white cliffs very pretty right now let's get on a boat and get the fuck out of here um (laughs) (laughs) galt testified in court that he had been instructed to steal the jewels by a french woman of his acquaintance called matheline uh, Matilda, sorry, Matheline, that wasn't even close, um, who had taken the jewels to France and was never found again. Although Galt's testimony was believed to be true, and I mean, I, I kind of believe that to a certain extent, he pleaded guilty at the Old Bailey on the 22nd of October and was sentenced to five years imprisonment. So this guy never got his jewels back. That's that's eight million, eight and a half million dollars just fucking spaffed away on a, a boat to France. Wow. So, But they got yeah. the guy. They got him. He went to prison for five years, which is surprisingly lenient for that kind of level of theft. I oh, that think is, I'd yeah, risk five millions. years for that kind of money. Yeah, yeah. Because if, if they aren't rec- recovering it, when he gets out after five years, he just fucks off to France and he's a, he's a millionaire, right? I, yeah, see, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like <laughs> people back Yeah, it's because I'm looking back. Yeah, I, so I just gullible. Think, God, if you just chill out and just wait yeah. like two or three weeks or I know. leave from somewhere else or yeah just like go the the best way to do it the, there's two other ways you could have done it right what i would have done if i'd stolen millions in jewels at, <laughs> at this point is i would have gone to either newcastle 
um, up in the northeast, or I'd have gone to Holyhead. Now, in Holyhead, you can get a ferry, and you could do back then, a ferry to Ireland. And then from Ireland, you go to another port and get a boat to France. Uh, from Newcastle, you can get a boat to Norway. And then from Norway, you could go to Sweden, and then maybe Sweden down to Denmark, and then Denmark, you could go to France. So that way, you're covering your tracks, right? You're going right. to multiple different ports, countries, jurisdictions, and like tracing you would be really difficult. But to hop on a fucking boat in Dover immediately is the stupidest thing you could do. And even more stupid than leaving millions of pounds worth of shit just out in the open for any fucker to steal. So, yeah. It's, it's Here, a stranger, hold this. Yeah. I don't think Conan Doyle was stretched with that one, to be honest, trying to find these people. He's like, wow, Jesus, is all crime this easy to solve? They're all fucking idiots. Um, <laughs> so the list of Paget's extravagance went on and on. This is where it gets really funny. He bought a car that converted the exhaust fumes into rose-scented perfume. Yes, you heard that right. This man's car's farts literally <laughs> smelled of roses. <laughs> I have Ow. no idea why. Did you just hurt yourself laughing at that? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I just Rose-scented, uh, rose-perfumed, I beg your pardon, exhaust fumes. It's fucking insane. So many questions. I know. Why? Why would you do that? How much would that have cost? How That's... do you pull that off? I, I, especially in like 1900. Who How? wears that? Who? Yeah. Fuck me. <laughs> uh, what's the point? Really? What's the point? He also had, and this is a weird description. He had a fleet of poodles. I don't, I don't know if they call it a fleet. Surely it's like a be a gaggle uh, of poodles, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, a herd, a, a murder of poodles. Um, <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, um, this this is one of my most one of my most favorite extravagances. Also, we should talk about um, we'll talk about his car in a minute. Um, but he made a ping pong jacket. Not even sure what that is, but he made a ping pong <laughs> jacket and wanted it to be green. Right. So, what do you do in that situation if you want your jacket to be green? Any like, let's say you have a no budget, right? You just basically put it in a bucket with a shitload of green dye, right? That's right, that's yeah. what people do with no money. Say you have a little bit of a budget, you go to, I guess, like a tailor or a dressmaker, and you're like, can you change this fabric to green and maybe sew it up? And maybe that's I don't know, a couple hundred bucks to do something like that. Maybe it's a bit more expensive. Say you want to do that, you want to look good, right? That's what most people with a budget would do, right? His answer was um, to make the entire jacket out of emeralds. Of course. That was his solution. It needs to be green, right? So what's green? Emeralds. Hmm. We're going to need a lot of emeralds, but I'm going to pay for that. Um, yeah, that's his solution. I want <laughs> See, a green coat. I would have had to go with grass because um, yeah. I don't have the budget. You know? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just cover me in grass. Oh, no, wait. I have a shitload of emeralds. We'll use those. Uh, <laughs> re records for one of his cars show it was modeled on a Pullman train carriage. Uh, with revolving armchairs, tables, cabinets, and solid silver fittings. Why? It's a fucking car <laughs> at the bargain price of £2,500 or just £265,000, which, um, if, you could, uh, if you could afford it today, that actually sounds like a reasonably decent deal for him because, like, the fucking chairs spin around and the table spins around and the fucking thing looks like a train and yeah. it farts roses. And it's made with solid silver fittings. Like 265 grand ain't that bad. That's actually, uh, yeah, that's Bentley yeah. style. 
Why yeah, normal I, people rich spending? Yeah, that is that's like I have inherited a shitload of money. I'm an idiot. Let's buy a fucking train and pimp it out and put it on wheels <laughs> and make it smell like roses. This is it sounds like a fever dream I'm descri- describing right here. This is the kind of shit you drop LSD to dream up. Maybe he was. Uh, Ooh, probably. There yeah, there we go. Uh the spending continued unabated until the ev- inevitable happened. Paget ran out ran out of money. In the summer and autumn of 1904, bankruptcy proceedings were started against him. He owed debts of about £560,000 or, in turn, 2022 money, £65 million. Holy crap! $110 million. Just this one dude who was earning $13 million a year somehow owed $110 million. He is bad at money. I know. It makes fucking Elton John and Liberace look like Scrooge. It's fucking insane. Um, trustees, but his costumes were fabulous. Yeah, they were. Just emeralds because he needed green. Trustees were appointed to run his estate and then began, this is amazing, 40 days of auctions selling off all the items he'd collected over the previous five years. They needed more than a month of continuous auctions to sell off his insane amount of crazy shit. It was uh, his worst wh- Lent ever. Yeah, I'm going to give up the world. <laughs> One day alone was set aside to sell his collection of dogs. What? From poodles to collies. Don't yeah. sell his fucking dogs, you monsters. Like, uh... take the emerald-encrusted ping-pong jacket or the, the fucking <laughs> wacky races car that he's driving around in. Not the fucking dogs. He doesn't Jesus. need the whole murder of poodles. Just some of the murder of poodles. Yeah, just just a couple of murder of poodles. Uh, maybe one <laughs> collie. I guess like when you have something that's described as a fleet of dogs, you probably have too many. Like if you can wake up in the morning, roll out of bed, land on a bunch of giant poodles, and then roll your way to the bathroom uh, <laughs> without your feet touching the floor, you probably have too many dogs. Yeah. I would say at that point. That would be that's... an indicator. Yeah. Another day of auctions saw 900 lots of silk lined suits and fur coats put under the hammer. Yeah. I think when you have 900 silk lined suits and fur coats, you probably got a problem. So, right. That's like, he could go yep. multiple years without yep. ever wearing the same coat. Exactly. He could nearly three, well, two and a half years let's say, nearly three years without ever wearing the same costume more than once. And by that, and let's be honest, after two years of wearing different clothes every day, you guarantee he's got at least 1,800 new items of clothing, right? Because he never stops buying. He's just insane. Um, He departed for a life in France on what would have uh, been viewed as a meager allowance of £2,000 a year. Um, Today, that translates to roughly 210 grand a year. Oh, no! I have to live on nearly a quarter of a million pounds a year. How will I cope? Do I have to? Do you? Are you going to have to buy Smaller. a place to live with that? Are you going to have to? No, the place already exists. This is just my income. What am I going to do? I can only afford eight types of cheese every day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's so fucking, it's insane. He told French journalists, "In six years, I have run through that fortune." Just how? I could not tell you. I think we can tell you. Yeah. I think it's the fleet of poodles and the fucking magic mystery tour car that you've you've bought there. Perhaps his three pa- oh my god. Perhaps his three thousand pounds a year bill for underwear revealed the extent extent of his spending problems. That's that's 
I mean, what is he doing with his underwear for, to have to spend three grand a year? I've they're had some edible. of the same underwear for 10 years. No, they're edible. He, for sure. It's all Fruit Loops. Yeah. It's or it's all woven strips. together using gold. <laughs> um, I, oh, my God. I just I made that joke in literally the next sentence. I had braces woven of threads of gold <laughs> instead of the usual elastic webbing that other men rely upon to support their trousers, he said. You fucking lunatic. The wow. buckles were of gold, too. It's not hard to see where a good deal of my money went. He he literally he he embodies zero fucks. This man, right? His, he does not care. His underwear has buckles. His well, he he made suspenders essentially oh, suspenders oh, okay. out of solid gold with solid gold buckles. So they were woven gold. I it was joking when I said that. He did it. <laughs> Now let's get on to the topic I'm sure a lot of people listening to or watching this podcast are wondering. Let's discuss his sexuality or rumoured sexuality there. Um, Paget's outrageous and flamboyant lifestyle. Actually, you know what? Before we get to that, now's a good time for me to use our first ever um, slide. I know, effects. So if you're watching this, (laughs) if if you're listening, this is going to be lost on you. I will describe it a little bit in the commentary. But if you want to go and search for History's Greatest Idiots on YouTube, this will be featured in the stream. We're about an hour in, so search to that point and you will see this. Boom. That is Henry Paget, the fifth Marquis of Anglesey, the dancing Marquis. Now, if you look at the three costumes, the one on the far left, the first one, is the most famous, where he is reclining or sort of reclining in a chair, posed with one hand on his face and his legs are kind of askew. He's wearing like a kind of a long robe. It's incredibly well embroidered. It's very elaborate. He's got the most incredible headdress that has like wings and like a kind of a peacock thing going on at the front. There are jewels everywhere on this uniform. And he bears, and this is something that people talk about a lot, he bears a striking resemblance to Freddie Mercury. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah, I was gonna say he yeah. he he looks like Freddie Mercury if he dressed up like Lady Gaga. Basically, yes, that's a very good description. And I'm kind of seeing now because obviously Freddie Mercury had various different looks in his life. The more elaborate stuff, I kind of feel like may have been taken from some of these pictures because these were around for a very long time. You look at some of the costumes; they are so elaborate. We've got like stuff from I'm assuming. The, I don't know what this will be from, but he's he's wearing an incredible headdress with a crown and feathers at the top and like kind of a flowing gown. And then the far right hand side, he's got an even more elaborate crown with lots of jewels and and stockings and like yeah. looks like the shoes are encrusted with jewel encrusted with jewels and just yes, and then you can see yeah. the stage behind him as well. That would have been the theater, the Gaiety Theater. Um, amazing. Yeah. Wow. And actually, you look at something like um, the uh, the Met Gala, say, for example, when, when people go all out on their costumes, I feel like he would look 100% in place in the Met Gala in today's world. You know, 120 years later, he would fit in perfectly on the red carpet of the Met Gala, particularly in the one on the left. That's, I could imagine, Harry Styles wearing something like that. That looks kind of amazing. I think he could pull it off, yeah. I totally do. I, what are your thoughts on, I mean, are you seeing now why he went bankrupt so quickly? Oh, yeah. Um, that 
the headdress thing on the one on the left with the big elaborate wings and stuff, you can see like that looks like there's jewels all in there. And yeah. if you only used real jewels to make this stuff, <laughs> geez, I know he could have just ran off with that headdress and been rich the rest of their life. They probably <laughs> did, given how lax this guy's <laughs> security was. It's it's kind of amazing that you know we always we see caricature people in shows and films and movies and stuff and we're like oh this is so one-dimensional this character and it's you know so there's no way anyone like that exists in this world this guy existed and he did not care what people thought about him what they believed about his private life he was just like this is me i'm going to spend all of my money like bruce's million style and i'm just going to enjoy my life damn the yeah. consequences it's fucking crazy he kind of yeah pulled off a whole like the good parts of caligula oh yeah for sure <laughs> there's there's a lot of like um decadence in this lifestyle for sure like he he would not have been someone who was shy of you know an extravagant lifestyle and you can just see that in these pictures so there we go that's that's our three minute slide or four minute slide of henry padgett the fifth marquist of anglesey if you look we'll carry on with the commentary now but if you're uh, interested in seeing that more often um please go and watch the video on youtube we'll probably do that more often now that i know i can do it effectively you have to create a slideshow but you know never mind you'll have to anyway, teach me i shall i shall show you it's really quite straightforward um so um we talked about his underwear we talked about stuff okay so um his travels took him to monte carlo where one newspaper pronounced he had invented a new gambling system to take on the casinos and hope to break the bank that didn't happen because he's fucking stupid um <laughs> so we'll talk about his sexuality now um uh, he, he was very outrageous and very flamboyant his taste for cross-dressing and the breakdown of his marriage had led, uh, particularly because it wasn't consumed, led many to assume that he was homosexual. Writing in 1970, uh, the homosexual reformer, um, that's that's a job that still exists in some parts of the UK and the US to this very day. What we're does, talking, what, how I does that work? I think we're talking about conversion therapy. Oh. Yeah, those people. Um, H. Montgomery Hyde uh, characterized him as the most notorious aristocratic homosexual at this period. That's not, you don't know for sure, though. One journalist wrote, I am driven to the conclusion from much that I have seen that there are men who ought to have been born women. Jesus Christ. Now, this is 1900. So. Um, and women who ought to have been born men, bearing the form of a man he yet had all the tastes something even of the appearance of not only a woman, but if the phrase be permissible, a very effeminate woman. Wow. This, this, I mean, okay. this is a gossip columnist <clears throat> of the day, basically, yeah, laying it all out there. Uh, Nora Shopland put it slightly more eloquently. She wrote that there is little doubt that Henry Paget must be included in the history of gender identity. That statement I completely agree with. especially. Exactly. We've got to remember, this is 1900. Vic Queen Victoria is still alive. There are very puritanical views on not just like who is allowed to vote and who's allowed certain rights, but also on how people should behave. We're even talking down to how they should behave at the dinner table, how children should behave when they're around adults and shit like this. And here's this guy 
blowing thirteen million pounds plus a year on the most elaborate costumes and being as flamboyant as possible. There's no way people weren't talking about this back then. Oh yeah, this crazy. I got I gotta gotta be honest with you on the respect of just like I'm gonna do me. You yeah, exactly. <laughs> so mm. I mean he's um, not he's not smart about stuff though. No, he really isn't. And actually there's more to it as well. Um, there's no evidence for or against him having had any lovers or either sex of either sex. Um, performance historian Viv Gardner believes um, rather that he was a classic narcissist. The only person he could truly love and make love to was himself because for whatever reason, he was unlovable. I suspect there's an element of losing his mother at a young age. In, that in that. Do it. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of trauma for a, for a baby to have, really. So um, the deliberate destruction by his family um, of those of his papers that might have settled this matter has been uh, an assessment left speculative. So when they got hold of his diary and his letters to people, they burned them after he died. I I feel, because the, the, the assertion is that he might be asexual, I suspect that if the family had burned his letters, I think uh, they wouldn't have done that if he were asexual. Because being someone who didn't have sex wasn't a crime back in the uh, Victorian era. Being gay was. And um, this is around the exact same time that Oscar Wilde was sent to prison for what's called gross indecency, which was basically just he was caught having sex with a man. Um, mm. That's basically what happened. So, um, yeah, I think that the fact that the family burned his his papers and letters kind of leads me to assume that he probably was gay, but there is still no hard evidence. So he may have been asexual, just incredibly flamboyant. That's, that's it. Maybe he just did whatever he wanted. Maybe he just was him. He was yeah. completely unique, especially for his era. I mean, Oscar Wilde was flamboyant, but Oscar Wilde dressed very stylishly. Like he was like, um, what's the word? Uh, the best tailors in London, right? So he had the okay. best yeah. suits, the best hats, and he just looked fucking fly, right? This guy is wearing costumes covered in diamonds and jewels, and you know that's like that's another level. Like you said, uh, Lady Gaga. Level yeah. costumes, basically. Um, according to Christopher Sykes, he did not have sexual relations with his wife, who initially left him after just six weeks of marriage. Sykes has reported the closest the marriage ever came to uh, consummation was that he would make her pose naked, covered top to bottom in jewels, because of course he fucking did, and had her sleep wearing those very same jewels. Um, I get why he's doing this. It's a beautiful, artsy thing, but that effect is lasting five minutes until someone rolls over in their sleep or farts. Right? Yeah, that ruins well, the effect. Jewels are sharp, aren't they? Like, yeah. I imagine that shit would hurt. And cold. Roll over. Oh, yeah. They're <laughs> cold as fuck, and there's, they're different shapes and different sizes. You roll over, you're like, they're getting stuck in your ribcage yeah, yeah. or whatever. That ain't fun. Uh, so yeah, he, he that was probably his way of saying we're never having sex. Just stay there, <laughs> covered in jewels. We're, we're, you're beautiful like that. Um, so there's no concrete evidence, but the fact that um, he was putting on Oscar Wilde plays um, in itself was really, really daring because Oscar Wilde had gone to prison at this point. So a lot of his stuff was kind of like, oh, we can't. He's you know he's he's a pervert. We can't 
put on his stuff in the theater. So the fact that he was willing to do that kind of makes him at least an ally, right? Which which was a very, very rare thing around this time. Um, on the 14th of March, while trying to conquer Mar Monte Carlo, sorry, 14th of March, 1905, while trying to conquer Mon Monte Carlo, he succumbed to tuberculosis-induced pneumonia and died at the age of 29 years old. Oh, um, yeah. Very. There's a lot happening there early. I know. He lived fast <laughs> and hard and died young. Newspapers bleakly stated that there were no family members to greet his coffin when it returned to the UK or even at the station on Anglesey ahead of the strictly private funeral. That's sad. Yeah. That's really sad. Uh, yeah, that Man. makes me really bad. Yeah, that sucks. <sighs> mm, yeah, I get... I guess it, it, there's a potential there for like, oh, they've disowned him maybe because of his spend thrift ways. But I really hope it wasn't to do with his sexuality, if that was the case. Um, anyway, as an only um, as an only child, his title was inherited by his cousin, Charles Henry Alexander Alexander Paget. By August of the same year, his beloved theater at Anglesey Castle had been removed and was once again a chapel. We want pantomime. Boo! Fuck you. <laughs> um, in fact, almost every trace that Paget had been the fifth Marquis disappeared. All of his papers were burned. His pictures were taken off the wall. His name Damn. was stripped from records. They did not want his name anywhere near this stuff. Man. That's, yeah, uh, that's bad. Yeah, they're trying to disown him in every sense. Um, in fact, all uh, let's see. The family estate was once again renamed uh, Plasnow, with which I'm fine with. Like it's gone back to its Welsh heritage. <coughs> it's not just a story about a wacky man who splashed money up the wall. It's also about a man who was erased from history. Said Davis, his biography biogra biographer, queer history was once again erased. That's a good point. Um, they're trying to. It didn't happen. Don't look over here. This isn't a thing. In, in society, nope, nope, gay people don't exist. Nope, don't look. Um, uh, let's see. Plasno has remained in the possession of the Paget family until 1976 when it was donated to the National Trust. Today, the house and gardens are open to the public, and the house contains an art collection, which includes a number of photographs of the fifth Marquis in theatrical costume. The photographs that survive Henry, however, show his love of costume and performance and remind us of his vivacious spirit. That's a quote from the National Trust. So they've done everything in their power to posthumously honor this man and make sure people recognize the kind of amazing person he was, especially for his time. In March 2020, a diamond tiara claimed to have been worn by the fifth Marquis was put up for auction, not by the Paget family at the 2020 European uh, Fine Art Fair in Maastricht. There's no proof that Paget ever owned the tiara. Um, it was worn by Marjorie, the Marquess of Anglesey, wife of the sixth Marquess, at the coronation of King George VI in 1937. Paget's style was often been compared with flamboyant rock star Freddie Mercury. You can definitely see it for sure. We've, we've mentioned that. Um, in 19, uh, 2017, the actor and composer Cyril Davis, who's his biographer, wrote and performed in How to Win Against History, a musical based on Paget's life. The award-winning show was performed in the 2007 Edinburgh Festival um, before a tour of Wales and England. In 2019, the show had its Irish premiere at the Dublin Theatre Festival. 
The British-American fashion designer Harris Reed cited Paget as an inspiration for his 2020 collection, Thriving in Our Outrage. And there ends the life and times of Henry Cyril Paget, the fifth Marquis of Anglesey, the Dancing Marquis, probably one of the first gay icons in British history. So, Derek, thoughts? <laughs> um, <clears throat> kind of mad. Yeah. I mean, that's a life for 29 years. It is like so much happened. And yeah. honestly, like a lot of good things. Yeah. Like art is good. It really is. This guy did not care about anything but art. That was I wish there was more goal. people to just wander through life not caring about stuff. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't the world be a better place if there were more Henry Padgett's around? Like just it. Doing I mean, we'd be broke. You'd be broke, <laughs> but you'd be happy. And this yeah. guy was happy, you know? And, yeah. And, and he went out like Doc Holliday. Tuberculosis. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Didn't kill anyone on the way out like Doc Holliday, but yeah. Which automatically gives him a lower score. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't kill um, anyone. Still a high score because he had yeah. two really expensive things stolen just because he l left them out. Just fucking lying around. You and know? he gets extra points because the person that stole it was extra stupid. So you get stolen. Oh, yeah. If you if an idiot can steal from you, <laughs> you're an extra idiot. You you are really stupid. And actually, he had to go to Arthur Conan Doyle, who I'm not 100% convinced Paget didn't think was a real detective. I, yeah. I'm not. He may have thought, oh, this guy's a real detective. No, he's just an author. This guy writes books and plays. Don't think he's a real fucking sleuth, mate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, all all Conan Doyle had to do was be less stupid than the other two, and everything was going to work out in his favor. So, yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, and because of that, I'm I'm going to yeah. just go with much like my guy's grades, uh, seventy five. Yeah, I, I think. think that's fair. Just because, because he's he was an, awesome, kind of. He was awesome, you know. He was, <laughs> he was authentically himself, and God bless him for that. Because more of us should be as authentically ourselves and make decisions based around what makes us happy in life, as long as they don't harm other people. Ultimately, unfortunately, <laughs> this guy's decision to "I'm going to be me," and me is blowing thirteen million pounds a year apparently and then some because he had 65 million pounds in debt fuck me that's that's like enron levels of debt right there that's crazy money to be fair it was all trickling down <laughs> yes trickle down economy he buys jewels constantly from everyone so there's the trickle down i was like oh my god this guy's given me like a year's worth of money in one go <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I'm happy with that. I actually didn't want, I just, I had to tell this story because right. it's so fascinating. He's such an amazing character. He's definitely an idiot because he did not care about financial prudence at all. Like if he just like set himself a budget for the year, if he'd just been like, right, I can go mad on 5 million pounds this year, he'd have still come out of it with like 8 million quid, right? Yeah. Which you set aside, you it's not when you have so much money coming in, it's not that hard to be sensible with it because a lot of the time it's just about putting it somewhere safe, you know. Uh, but he wasn't doing that, he was like, spend, 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 and obviously, probably not paying taxes, all of that. So, definitely an idiot on that front, but such a decent guy in terms of who he was and not to his wife, 
for sure. But uh, probably shouldn't have married someone who was probably gay. I would yeah. say, yeah. Well, or your cousin. Or your cousin. Don't marry your cousins. Fucking hell, British aristocracy. We just can't <laughs> stop. Um, so yeah, um, that's that's the life of Henry Cyril Paget, the uh, fifth Marquis of Anglesey, the dancing Marquis. Scores uh, a quite low seventy-five, but I think we're both happy that he didn't score particularly highly because gotta love him. Good lifestyle. And then you have the uh, the the oh, I nearly said Confederate. Then the uh, the Northern General. Who, well. Yes. almost general, who was not too concerned with sniper fire, unlike every other human being who's been involved in battle, who was like, oh shit, there's a sniper, maybe I should get down. No, gentlemen, stand tall, stand upright, duck, stop ducking, they couldn't hit an elephant from... Boom. That's... yeah. <laughs> Good night. Uh, I, I feel like the, the story um, from this episode is both of these guys were pretty decent in terms of human beings they were decent people. Um, they just let themselves get carried away with feeling indestructible, feeling like nothing could stop them. And reality does stop you. Sometimes. But as long as you, sometimes, yeah. Uh, but as long as you're a halfway decent person, that's really all you, you can count on, I think, a lot of the time. So um, it's sad that they both died so young. And that they uh, they both didn't get to live life to the fullest, but really interesting lives, both of them in yeah, in both yeah. circumstances. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, a lot of fun doing this one. I have to dude, say, it was it's yeah, and I love <laughs> honestly that we still we're not really sharing, yeah, uh, the people that we're going over beforehand, yeah. and I like that we're somehow still landing on the same themes. Yeah. It's kind of mad, isn't it? Just for it's anyone good. who's out there who's is confused about this, we don't talk about. It. We don't tell each other who we're. Co- I mean, it's, we've. I think we've maybe done it once or twice in the entire run of this show, right? I think I've maybe yeah. said, "I'll go with this guy." I think I may have changed one at the last minute, but that was. I think that was a specific reason behind that. But usually, what we do is we give each other like a hint as to who we're going to cover, and then we're like, "Oh, it's a nice, pleasant surprise." Pr- surprise. So whenever we react it's genuine and i really like that but actually it is really nice that we're landing on similar themes with these people they're either financial fraudsters at the same time or quite nice people who are kind of stupid or you know so we're going along similar themes and i i like that so we're never going to change that we are we're never going to change (laughs) we're never we're never going to stop not telling each other who we're covering because i like that surprise i also like yeah it is i also like finding out when i'm like Oh, I kind of know that name. I want to hear more. And then I'm like, oh, I've learned I've learned more than I knew before. So I like that aspect of our show. Um, I always learn because I hardly know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know as much as I think I do. I think I hear things tangentially and then I forget about them. And I'm like, oh, is that something that I should know? Anyway, uh, thank you so much for the show, Derek. It's it's been amazing as ever. So um, if you find if you're a decent person and you're listening or watching to our show, so that means you're at least a halfway decent human being because you're supporting the you're supporting podcasters. <laughs> um, so if you're a decent person and you find yourself going down a route where you're maybe going off the rails, maybe you're giving in to some quite silly thoughts or uh, approaches to life, maybe just rein it back in because... There's one thing that you can uh, that will outlive you, and that's your reputation. 
So, you know, go to your grave as a decent human being. Not everything else, nothing else matters really, as long as people remember you for some good things. And while there are tainted legacies, we've talked about this this week, I certainly think that both of these people have come out on the, the right side of history as opposed to the majority of the people that we talk to and one of whom whose sentencing is coming up this month. So I can't wait to see what happens to her. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's right around God, the corner. That show was good. That was so good. Oh, my God. Watch <laughs> the dropout. It was amazing. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, fucking fascinating, amazing performance by Amanda Seyfried. Oh, my God. Amanda, if you're listening, that was really good. By the way, uh, call us. We'll feature you on a podcast. Um, yes, we will. <laughs> uh, so uh, until next time, Derek, would you like to say goodbye, please? Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. You're awesome. You. It was so awesome. And thank you so much. We will see you again in a few weeks. Take care now.